Welcome into the New Orleans Saints podcast for Wednesday, June 17th. I hope you are all doing well as each day seems to crawl by as we continue quarantine, as we continue to enter into phase two um, here in New Orleans. I'm Caroline Gonzalez. I'm joined on the show today by my lovely co-host, John DeShazer. And today on the show, we have a special guest linebacker for the New Orleans Saints, Demario Davis, who has just come out with a new book, The Unsuccessful Champion of available now really anywhere where you can purchase books. It is a great read. It's a relatively quick read. It's about 170 pages. So go out and get that book now by Demario Davis. He just got back from traveling across America with Bill's Josh Norman listening and talking to communities. So we're happy to have Demario on our team and happy to have him on the show today. Demario, how are you doing during these times? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I just try to stay, I always try to stay balanced, you know, in my heart, in my mind. And, you know, and that's how I try to view view the world through, through a positive lens. I stay balanced. And that's just what I'm trying to do in this chaotic, chaotic world. Demario, it never ceases to amaze me that you always have a smile just on your face at, at all times. I can say, you know, we've, we're going through these times and look at you, you're just you're smiling the whole time. It seems like when I turn on the TV to look on ESPN or any of the many interviews you're doing, it doesn't matter what kind of situation that the Saints are in, the world are in, you always have a smile on your face. How do you keep such a positive mindset? <laughs> uh, I think in, in short, two words, faith and love. You know, I start with my, with my faith. You know, I'm always trying to stay centered and locked into my relationship with God. And, you know, I just try to start with that. Like, I feel like, when, when my faith is aligned and I'm locked in with my relationship, it just kind of gives me balance. And I know that God has already overcome the world and, you know, the world is just kind of playing itself out. And I'm, I'm victorious in him regardless. And then just love. You know, I just try to try to love people as best I can and don't let whatever happened in the world, no matter how dark or how bad it is, don't let it impede my love for people, you know, not just my love for my family, my love for my neighbors, my love for my enemies. You know, and, and I think when I have those two right, it just kind of gives me uh, an even balance and a proper perspective to look at the world, you know. Tomorrow, there Mario, are many reasons. Mario, first, I'm going to need you to be my witness here. Um, she called me lovely, and you heard that, right? Because, you know, nobody's probably calling me that since my grandmother, maybe. My wife didn't even call me that, but, you know, I'll take it. So, <laughs> so but we know you've been on the front lines in, in terms of social justice, uh, in terms of speaking out against police brutality, in terms of speaking in favor of the protest. So, so how are you personally feeling or handling this uh, from your perspective right now in America? Well, I'm a big person that, that, that doesn't uh, just try to cast an opinion about something without trying to understand it fully. Um, that's a big reason why uh, one of my colleagues, Josh Norman, and I you know, went and toured around uh, the country. We went to Atlanta and we went to D.C. and we went to L.A. and Minneapolis uh, and Buffalo, you know, so just to the corners of the country, just to, to, to get a pulse on what the people are feeling, you know, with all the protests uh, going on, like how the people feeling in different cities, hearing what they believe are the problems and what they believe are the solutions, and then trying to formulate an idea uh, of solution and actions, and, and, and I'm a big person trying to let, let my actions speak for itself. And, and after the tour, I would have to say that I'm um, uh, extremely optimistic. 
um, when you get out there and you realize that the movement is being led by by the youth, their vision for disruptive innovation, uh, they're simply just want a new model. You know, they don't they don't uh, they're not okay with the oppressive structure that that uh, that we've constantly tried to reshape and reform over over the uh, hundreds and hundreds of years that we've existed. They're not okay with that. And uh, here you have a perfect time to be paused and, and the world is going to need a new model of the way that we do everything. And that's the same approach that they take, uh, you know, with social justice. They don't want to reform an oppressive structure. Uh, they don't want to reform something that, that has been known for systemic injustice and systemic racism. They said, you know what, it are, there are some good things about this, but there are a lot of bad things. And let's tear it down and build something new. And, um, you know, they have a point, you know, and we're not going to get there until we're all united and we all want to stand for justice. And um, for us to accept any injustice is us just being, you know, stuck in the past. And when you realize that that's, that's, that's the way that they're moving, um, you almost want to just get out of the way and let them do their thing. And so when you see a movement like that, and, and our young people are very smart, very brilliant. Um, they have all these interconnected webs and of, of communication. And that's why the, the, uh, the strength of the protest has been so strong and it's, it's something that we've never seen before in history is because of that brain power that they have and the way that they understand, you know, disruptive innovation pretty much. The same approach that they use in, at Google and at Apple and, you know, at Amazon, all these young people coming up with these new innovative ways of doing things and these things that we have never seen before, that's the same approach that they're taking towards justice, you know, and so um, I'm extremely excited. I'm extremely excited. Uh, excited i'm extremely encouraged because i think that's what the world needs right now you know we need a new model yeah when i saw you say step aside you reminded me of dave Chappelle, who basically said you know i'm stepping aside i'm just letting the streets talk do the talking because you know the street voice is so powerful right now but it, when, when you when it comes to you you're you're a guy who grew up in mississippi i grew up in macon georgia with, with children of the south and personal experience funnels into what we believe and what we add to the conversation. How many of your personal experiences have funneled into your input into the conversation? I know you like to listen and hear what other people are saying, but you know, when you put your input into it, how much of your personal experiences have funneled into that and shaped it? Well, um, I try to remain objective. Um, you know, I, I use my personal experiences to understand the reality of it, you know, uh, I've been called, I've been called, you know, nigger many times. I've been called boy. I've been called coon. I've been called all those things. Uh, I've seen those things. You know, I've seen those things acted out against me. I've been pulled over by the police and, and had machine guns pointed at me for no reason at all. Um, you know, I've seen, you know, going in the courtroom and the judge doesn't even look up to me in the face. He just, you know, gives me my sentence and, and, and bangs the hammer, you know, without even, uh, any kind of words of, uh, empathy or anything, you know, towards me when, you know, and I was a college student at the time. So um, I've seen all these things and I use that for the reality of it, but I have to remain objective because if I only look at it through the lens of my personal experience, it's only going to create bitterness, it's only going to create hatred, it's only going to create that same darkness that was uh, shined upon me when uh, the same as George Floyd, you know, the knee of America has been on the neck of black people since, since its existence. And if I was to, 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 to really just use my personal experiences in that, it's only going to create uh, darkness in my heart. It's only going to create hatred. And so I'm not going to be able to see clearly. And, you know, uh, like Dr. the famous Dr. King said, hate can't drive out hate, only love can do that. 
darkness can't drive out of darkness, only, only light can do that. And those are the things that I always want my heart to have is love and light. But at the same time, you know, I process the reality of it. I know these things exist. And I realize that the solutions need to happen and the solutions need to happen like yesterday. And that's why I'm encouraged about what, what, what the kids got because I think they understand it. You know, reform is not the way. Like, you know, just, just it's almost like um, having a phone and just wanting to put new apps on it. But the phone got a virus. You need a new phone. You know, and so that's 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 where I'm where I'm at with it. You know, and, and and I just try to amplify the voices coming from the ground. You know, these aren't my personal opinions. This is what what's going on the ground. When I first went out, um, I believe I was I was one of the people that was more supporting like reform because that's what we've been told so long. You know, it's going to take time. We just need to reform. Ask for a little bit. Take what you can get. Well, the kids they don't think like that. They're like either you're going to give us this or we're going to create it. And that's all you can do. And so understanding them and how they think, I think those are the perfect leaders for the movement. You know, Caroline mentioned your calm, the calmness of your voice and your approach. And I think when people read your book, The Unsuccessful Champion, which is uh, strategically located on the shelf right behind you there, so folks go out and get it. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But is that something that you have to approach each day anew? I know in your book, uh, how you talk about going into your prayer closet and how you have to kind of refresh yourself is that something you have to do daily to make sure you remain even keeled well it's just a it's like a, a mantra of mine or um you know a foundation or principle that i use that life is 10 percent what happens to you you're 90 percent how you respond to it good things and bad things are going to happen to all of us individually and collectively but it's all about how we respond to it you know and the response usually comes out of uh the, the positive or negative mindset, you know, it's the glass half empty or glass half full, you know, um, so it's looking at it from that standpoint. And I think that's what allows you to have uh, optimism um, in, in, in most of the situations. You know, if you understand, like, you know, this is just happening to me and it's going to, it's, it's good things about it, it's bad, it's bad things about it. If I can find the positives in it, uh, that's going to stop me on my way to, to creating the right type of response to the situation. And that's where it, I, it usually begins. I know you said you were encouraged with the way things are moving, and you've been on the social justice um, and equality, uh, I don't want to say track, but you've, you've been in favor of that, and you've been aggressive about it for several years, being a part of the Players Coalition. Do you feel like, I guess, you know, now you want to cheer because everybody seems to be catching up or seems to be a lot more cognizant of it? Yeah, I think there's a general awareness um, that we have a lot of wrongs in our country that we have to right. And I think um, there's a desperation to right those wrongs rapidly, uh, especially among communities that are non-Black, you know, and understanding that, you know, uh, Blacks have been wronged in our country and we need to fix it. There has been a, a general awakening in, in, uh, since George Floyd in, in the middle of this pandemic that I think is going to be extremely helpful. Um, also, the, the way that we're thinking about solutions is different. You know, it's, it's, it's wholehearted solutions. You know, people want to deal with the root of the issue and not just put Band-Aids on, on a bullet wound. And then, as I said before, uh, with the young generation being at the table and their understanding of disruptive innovation and understand, you know, uh, pushing out new models in the midst of chaotic situations, I think all of that collectively puts us in, you know, uh, 
a very right time to change history and change the course of action for our country uh, forever. JD, I'm asking two questions, so don't go. Um, Demario, one of our lovely Saints personnel, I'm going to say lovely again, uh, Shanika Dabney Henderson, I remember tweeted uh, something about reading the room, and it got me thinking. It was at the very, you know, start of the, the protests and things, and I was thinking about the concept of reading the room, and I was thinking, as a young person myself, um, kind of in this generation of things changing and how we think about things, um, what my room looks like. And I was thinking about how different people's rooms um, change how they are thinking right now. My room has, you know, people posting certain things on social media that aren't necessarily representative of the times that we're going through. So how big of an impact um, does your personal room have on how you think right now? And how big of a room does your Saints locker room have on the impact that you can make on that room? Does that make sense? Uh, you mean like the people around you? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I think it's very important to have very different um, and diverse groups of people around you. Um, that's where you are able to have challenges to your own way of thinking and to be able to understand uh, new ideals and new perspectives. Um, you need you need different ethnic groups so you can understand different cultures so you can understand the way that that that, that they think. Um, um, for example, I think a lot of uh, my understanding uh, about you know my white brothers and sisters it was a, a big reason why I was able to extend the hand of forgiveness to Drew because I didn't think that he did anything any different than a lot of uh, white people who had who had kind of missed the mark or missed the point for so long. And so I think when you have an understanding of different people and around different people, it makes you a little more uh, empathetic to where they are. Um, also, I think we need different, you need different age groups of people. This isn't, though this is the most unique probably protest uh, in the history of our world because of all the ethnic groups coming together, um, you know, just, not just in our country, but uh, globally around one issue. Uh, it's not unique in the essence of a protest or standing up against for racial injustice. And so many generations have had to deal with what that looked like in their time and probably have already formulated their mindset of what that is to look like. So, but you can, you can take wisdom from all those different generations. And now we have this younger generation uh, where I feel like we're kind of in the middle. Um, we have this younger generation that's coming in and pushing things like like never seen before. And so I think you need all those at the table so that you can properly understand. As I said, when I went out, um, you know, I was more on the reform end, but when I had a chance to sit with some of the younger people and talk with them, I was able to bring in different different ideas. Right. Uh, when it comes to the Saints locker room, you know, I think just uh, locker rooms in itself are different than, than the rest of the world. You know, because you have to come together from all different backgrounds uh, for a common goal. And those common goals are uh, many and they come quickly. You know, you have many games that you always have to be on the same page for. And then you have a season that you always have to be on the same page for. And, it, and for you to have success, all those cultures have to be able to leave their, their, their problems and their differences uh, at the door and, 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 and come together. And I think that's why, you know, locker rooms and, and sports offer a picture towards unity um, that the rest of the world can model. 
I know you've alluded to several times in your answers, this kind of feeling different, this time around feeling different in the younger generation. Twitter was started in 2006. Um, Trayvon Martin is the first instance that I remember being you know, blown up on social media in 2012. Um, so that younger generation has basically grown up seeing this on social media, on their, their iPhones that they carry around all day, every day since this started. Um, and this time certainly feels different. You could speak to it better, but things aren't gonna change overnight. And I think that's kind of the tough reality that everyone has to come to terms with that though this is the focus of everyone's attention, especially right now with everyone staying at home and COVID-19, um, this isn't gonna change overnight. But how do you take the small victories out of this time in these protests? Uh, I, think there, I think there are a lot, you know, though it can be changed overnight, we don't have to be dealing with uh, systemic racism, you know, five years from now. We can be past that and on to, to a new issue. Um, I think it's simply, you know, finding the low-hanging fruit. First, we can remove all oppressive symbols. We can remove all those, all the statues you see coming down, all the flags that you see being addressed. You know, we can remove those. That, 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 that's quick. Um, you know, bringing justice to, to some of these families um, with these cops where the world is pretty much in agreement, you know, this, this is murder. That's the beginning. Um, I think finding, finding a new way uh, of, of policing instead of just thinking about the traditional model of policing, you know, finding ways to uh, have the, community, the, the, the cops not have to answer all the calls. Um, if it's, you know, substance abuse or something like that, that we can have social workers, you know, go out, um, you know, all these different, different situations, uh, cops don't have to be the first ones called. We can have more of a community approach. So I think those are certainly uh, ways, I think with all the corporations, um, you know, even the NFL, where all this funding is being offered up to go into black communities. I think there are there are de definitely a lot of models uh, that, that corporations can lead the way. Uh, even the NFL, especially, can lead the way in economic inclusion of, of the Black community. You know, and, and helping uh, revitalize a lot of our communities that have been destroyed, you know, by guns and, and drugs and um, you know systematic oppression. And uh, so I think there are a lot of things that can go into place, and if you put those things into place very quickly. Um, in five years, we're not we're not sitting here with this problem, and you know I think I would just encourage is the young people don't stop, like you know, uh, continue to use every method form uh, that you, that you have created or have known since, like you said back in two thousand six when Twitter was uh, uh, came about. That's the reason why we're having success now. Uh, we need to keep we need to keep that momentum going, and you know don't stop, don't take don't. Don't take that pressure off until, until it's gone. DeMario, I promise we're going to get to the book here. This is going to be the last one before we pivot to the book, but I've got to ask you now. Uh, we're going to take it home now. You've got a young son. And you also have two, two young daughters. And so, you know, now I, I ask you what the message is that you tell your kids as they're growing up because, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'll freely admit I'm 53. I know I don't look that old, but 53. I've got a, uh, my son's 27. And, and so, you know, we've already had the talk numerous times. When I see him, 
Uh, and when we depart from each other, he's going home, I'm going home, or whatever it is. And then we fist bump, we hug, I kiss him on the forehead, and I say, be careful. And he knows I ain't talking about looking both ways before you cross the street. And so, you know, during those talks, when you're telling your son, you know, basically that a lot of times he might have to swallow his pride or swallow his ego, even if he believes he's right, because you're trying to prepare him and say, look, your, your job really is to just get home alive or just get to a point where you can call me and then, you know, I can hopefully ride in with some assistance. But, you know, you've got younger kids. So how do you address them as they grow, old, as they grow older or when the time comes? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, my hope and my desire, my kids are young. My oldest is six. I have three girls um, and a boy. My boy just turned five today. And, you know, my hope and desire is by the time I send my kids out as teenagers and they start moving around, that I don't have to have that conversation with them. You know, like I said, we don't have to be dealing with this situation in five years. We can, we can eradicate it. And the reason why I'm so optimistic is because the kids that are out there now, the, 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 the 15 to 25-year-olds, that's what they're saying. They're not asking for us to create a system that protects them. They're demanding that we create it or they'll create it themselves. And that's the type of that's the type of the generation, you know, that I want the world that I want my cat my child to, to grow up in. Not that he has to ask for a system to be just for him, but that he'll go out and create one that's just for him if, if it ain't if it isn't working. And that's why that's why I'm so optimistic. And that's why I'm so encouraged by this younger generation and the way that they understand disruptive innovation. Because if we don't give it to them, they're going to create it themselves. Simple as that. You know, if you watch your kids that play, like my kids, they, they, they do uh, YouTube and all this stuff. And all they do is sit up there and learn how to do different stuff. My son just took you know, some Lego blocks and, and, and built like a, ten, uh, like a six-foot tower. And he learned how to do it on watching YouTube. So they're self-taught. They teach themselves how to create the things that they want to create. And they don't need us for them. And so the best thing that we can do is come alongside them and help them get it right. And um, yeah, man. So I, I hope my hope and desire is uh, that I don't have to teach my son that. But I think if I grow up, if I continue going on and you know, saying you know, I'm gonna have to have that conversation with my son before I have to, I have to have it, then you know, I'm, I'm posturing myself for things not to change versus posturing myself for change. All right, so now, The Unsuccessful Champion. So now you, you wrote, you've got this book out. Uh, you'd reference, I'd heard you reference and kind of allude to, you know, a rough upbringing, you know, that you kind of, you know, you were kind of, I don't want to say delinquent, but I guess, that's, I guess that's the best word for it. But I didn't realize until I read this thing that you were like Lil Thug Double D. <laughs> it, was, it was something so... What what prompted you to write this book? Uh, somebody reached out to me. You know, I had been doing um, these articles for uh, this site called The Increase, where they just pretty much tell a bunch of faith stories. And, you know, I, I would share my stories and, and lessons that I had learned throughout life in different situations and how I got wisdom from those situations or looking back, you know, things that they taught me. And... Uh, the person that was doing the article was like, you know, you need to write a book because, you know, it covered probably about 10 stories of mine. 
And, you know, I had never thought about it. And I was like, okay, well, I'm game. And I felt like here's an opportunity for me to tell my story in a way that people can learn um, from the life lessons that I had gone through. I feel like it's a lot of people out there that are going through adversity. I feel like there's no way out. Um, but just understand that, that you're not the first person to go through that ability first. You're not the last person. And hopefully I can speak into those dark situations and give them light. Um, but also in, in, in the grand scheme of it, understand that uh, just because you're in, in a dark place doesn't mean that's where you're always going to be. And, you know, uh, from the darkest places, uh, some of the brightest lights come from. What prompted you to make this more about your faith than about football? Because, you know, people and, and folks look, just because it's not about, you know, knocking folks out on football, uh, in football, doesn't mean it's not a good book. Trust me, it is. You know, so go get it. But you focus a lot more on, on the faith more so than the football. And, and so what made you decide to go in that direction as opposed to saying, you know what, I'm an NFL linebacker. Uh, I'm, I'm an all pro. I'll just, you know, talk a bunch about, you know, tackles and interceptions and, and let folks jump into it that way. Well, football is what I do. It's not who I am. I think that's, I think that's firstly um, how that just comes out. So if I start to talk about me, um, you're going to get glimpses of football. Like most of my analogies I make are, are football related. Uh, but it's not who I am. You know, my priorities are my faith, my family. You know, then football because it's my career, then a man in the community uh, after that. And um, you know, that's just kind of how I process it. But the story of my life, uh, football was just a vehicle that my life kind of moved, my, my life kind of moved through. And if it wasn't for football, um, I probably would have been done a long time ago. Ain't no telling where, where, where I'd be when I got expelled from school when I was a sophomore had my coach not let me back on the team, you know, I probably wouldn't have had a chance to change my life and change my situation. And, um, you know, that was the thing, the driving force when I had to go to alternative school, my whole driving force of why I didn't want to stay at the alternative school because I wanted to go back to my school so I could play football. Then when I got a chance to go to Arkansas State and I went to jail, had my coaches not bailed me out, you know, I could have been in, I could have been in jail for seven, eight months like a lot of these people who can't pay cash bill which would have psychologically affected me in a, in a, in a dramatic way and, and could have completely derailed my life. And had my coach not let me back on the team, who knows where I'd be. But shortly after that, I ended up meeting our team chaplain, and that's who ended up leading me to Christ. So had, if I had not played football, that team cha- I probably would have never met that team chaplain, who was the guy who ended up discipling me, leading me to Christ, and helped me get my life on the right track. So football has just kind of been, you know, the vehicle that has moved, moved my, my life forward. Uh, same, you know, all these um, social impact things that I've been able to do, a lot of it has been mobilized around football. Um, you know, so it's just it's just been a vehicle that has allowed me a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so I definitely try to hit on football as much as I can in there, you know, talking about my relationship with my high school coach, my college coach, uh, you know, my relationships that I've had throughout the league. Um, but I think so much more of it is about the messaging that comes from those stories. I don't want to just tell stories to, to get people intrigued. You know, I want you to learn the life lessons that I learned through those. And that's what I try to put in there. And a lot of it just has that spiritual um, undertone. You know, two anecdotes early in the book really jump out, out of the book for me. Um, one is the reference to your grandmother, because, you know, my grandma was just like that, man. She, Gosh, you cook. <laughs> and, and the second is, 
punching your arm through the window and slicing your and slicing your arm. How close did you come to bleeding out, man? <laughs> well, first I got to give grandma, grandma, and mom dupes um, a lot, a lot of props. You know, that was probably my, that was probably my first love in the world. My mom had me when she was young, so I stayed with my grandmother while my mom finished high school and college. And my grandmother was an angel. You know, she used to tell me all the time, like, you're going to be special, you special, you special. She used to tell other people that, you know, like, when people try to get on to me or whoop me, she would tell them they, they couldn't whoop me, you know, because I was special. <laughs> and, you know, that just instilled something in me. You know, it just, like, I had this light on my life, like, I, I, was, I was destined to do something big, and, you know, here it is playing itself out now. Um, and so it was almost like she was uh, uh, prophetic. And she was the one that taught me to read my Bible. She was the one that taught me to pray. And so even though I, I strayed away, I always knew how to find my way back. Like, I, that's how I knew to, 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 to spend time with that chaplain because he had first started doing, like, Bible studies. And I knew to go to Bible study, even though I was drinking, smoking, partying, and doing all that. I knew I needed to go to Bible study. And so that was that foundation that she, that she laid. And so uh, definitely always got to give her props, you know, uh, rest in honor. We'll, we'll, we'll hopefully see her again one day in heaven. Um, but when it comes to the window incident, yeah, man, I came close to bleeding out. <laughs> I was dying, man. And it didn't even hit I mean, It's funny now. I shouldn't be laughing. It's funny now, but obviously it wasn't funny then. He almost <laughs> died like twice within the first 30 pages. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, you know, me and my friend, you know, we out and, uh, you know, just create mischief. We, we started playing Ding Dong Dish to start the night. So we were knocking on doors and just running. And then it kind of got uh, more mischievous and we started like breaking in these abandoned houses. And when I when I when I punched the window and pulled my arm back, it was dark outside. So I pushed and pulled my arm back. So I didn't know all I do, I just kind of felt something. And it I, it kind of felt like water on my arm. But I, I kind of felt like I was bleeding. So he ended up uh, going around and kicking the door in on the front side. He turned the light on in, in the house. And I was able to see in my arm, and it was just this, it was just like blood everywhere. And I went to the, uh, I went up to the, the sink and went to try to, I was going to pour water, but I knew like I couldn't do that. So I just tried to wrap it up and run home. And as we running, we're probably about a good half a mile from, from, from my house. And we're running. And as we're running, like I'm, I'm blacking out while we're running. And um, yeah, I just, I, I went in the house. And I put my arm under the sink and caught myself like I was going to tough it out. I turned the water on, and I turned the water and stuck my arm under there. And, man, that was a that was a, a feeling I wouldn't want on nobody. Like, the water mm -hmm. went straight to my bone, and it, it went from, like, it was like a cringe from the top of my head to my toes. And so I, at that point, I knew, like, I'm not going to be able to pass this stuff at home because I wanted to hide it from my mom. That's what I really wanted to do. But I went in and woke my mom up, and she drove me to the hospital. And when I got there, I was getting stitches. And that's where I go into in the book talking about, like, the first time I heard that audible voice from God because I'm looking at it on the table and I can see how far, it, how close it is to my wrist. And if I would have hit that nerve, I would have been out. I would have bled out right there. So it was just amazing that just the grace of God that, that, that just covered me in that moment. And, like, I knew at that point God, God was letting me know, like, that strike two, you know, you know, you got expelled from school, that was strike one. Here you are, almost killed yourself, that's strike two. The next time it's going to be over. And I understand it now, God had a much bigger purpose for my life. And I was wasting time. 
he needed me to get right. You know, you've been with three organizations, the Jets, the Browns, and now the Saints, and all three of those organizations, you've uh, been pivotal in terms of, you know, organizing Bible study for players, uh, and I guess players' wives and families. When you're doing that, they, and you know, obviously it's not something where you can force a guy to do it. It requires, uh, I would imagine, well, not imagine, I know it requires a certain amount of vulnerability, especially from athletes, guys who ain't used to, you know, saying, I need help. Uh, how... I guess, how encouraging is it to be able to have those and to have the participation that you have? Well, a lot of that I've had for some reason uh, since I came in the league. You know, I remember being on a plane and guys, uh, when I was a rookie, would come up to me and sit down and just ask me about, like, what I would recommend in their marriages, you know, or or their relationships that they have with their girls. Those you see a lot of guys, they have issues in their marriages or their relationships. That's what they want to talk about. And from there, I'm able to walk out, like, why you have to have that foundation, you know, right with God first so that you can make sure that you do right as a man. And then that's when it makes it a lot smoother in your relationship. Um, and so, like, that's what I've seen a lot of. And so much of it is just example. It's not like I walk in the locker room and I'm just striking up all these God conversations. Or mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it isn't even walking around inviting guys to Bible study. Though sometimes I'm sitting beside guys at breakfast and I'm like, hey, we're going to Bible study. And they'll tag along. Um, but, you know, a lot of, of it is just example, you know. And so in these in these locker rooms, you realize guys have a lot of different lifestyles. And I remember how my lifestyle was. Um, and when you see a guy who has a strong relationship with God, who, uh, you know, uh, loving and faithful to his wife, who's uh, a father that's present, you know, with a family that's active in community, you kind of see those things and you admire them and you just – you wish you could kind of be over there, but it's, it's almost like it's something that's holding you back. And, you know, I think that that presence, it just draws people in. It just draws them in. And, you know, um, like I never, I'm never looking at anybody and judging them for the way that they act or anything they do. Um, and I think at that point, you know, guys start to inquire more. And then when there's a, a God conversation going on, guys will just bring me in. I'll give my two cents. And guys just start to lean in more on an individual level. And that's when you start to create those relationships. When you create those relationships, then guys can, can, can generally see uh, their need for something bigger. All right, you touched on it briefly at the beginning um, about the tour that you just got back from. You spoke at se- in several different cities. Can you touch on maybe m- m- some of the most memorable things that happened um, on that tour, why you were called to action and, and where you went? Yeah. Yeah, um, it was some, 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 some very powerful moments in Atlanta. You had 50 leaders, um, 50 different activists who uh, were, were, were getting together to, to find out what they wanted to press for as far as the black community. And when you see that type of unity happening, you know, uh, you understand a lot of power can happen behind that. That, that was in a, that was going to be led by uh, Bernice King of the daughter of uh, Martin Luther King. Um, so that was pretty powerful to see. Uh, when we were in D.C., we got to walk on, uh, I don't know if you guys seen the road that leads up to the White House where they uh, put out Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And actually, the, uh, the people would say that the mayor did that for, uh, for optics. And, um, but, but she's not doing anything to help to be Black Lives there. Uh, but we met a guy that was there, and he was so he was so angry at the system, you know. And 
you know, pretty much was talking about how because he speaks truth, any, any black man that speaks truth is kind of like ostracized from society. And he had a, a sign that, that said, uh, who would pay uh, Malcolm X to be the next black Jesus or something like that. And so he was pretty much, his point was pretty much that nobody pays for uh, profit. Nobody pays a profit to the profit. You know, anybody that's gonna go around waking up people. And, and then it was just a moment where I was talking with him and, you know, I asked him cause he had the black Jesus on there. I said, who paid Jesus? I just asked him who paid Jesus. And he said, well, well, the flock took care of the shepherd, you know? And at that point, it was almost like something that was over him just broke, you know, and realizing like, it's not about money. It's not about somebody paying you to go and to do truth. You just go and share truth and the rest will take care of itself. And that spirit just kind of like broke off of him at the point he was in, he was in tears. And uh, it was just an amazing and powerful moment. And then we just kind of prayed over our country. And so it was, it was nice to be like right there at the White House and, and, and on that ground and, and praying over our country in that beautiful moment where you see people that, you know, have that hostility and hatred, not necessarily hatred, but just that hostility. And it's, and it's, a, it's, it's a just hostility. Like, you know, he, he, he wasn't telling any lies, but to see that broken, and you know, for, for for grace to come in and understand, like you know, mission and purpose, and just pray over the country. So that was a powerful moment. Um, you know, DC, no, not DC, but Buffalo. Uh, being able to speak, you know, we, it was a press conference, and the mayor kind of got up and talked about you know some of the things that he wanted to do uh, in in the city, and then Josh and I got up and spoke, and just spoke empowerment into the room. And, you know, that we don't have to sit and stand, you know, for uh, injustice and we can eradicate it. And it's not like uh, we're going to wait, you know, for months for this to happen. We're going to wait for years for this to happen. We're going to demand it happen right now. And watch how we watched how that empowered the mayor. Um, and we had the people behind us, you know, this is uh, Free the People, which is an organization that works in Buffalo. We brought all of them up behind us. And I just saw like the mayor realizing that he had the people behind him, that he could really enforce these solutions. Uh, though I know he's up against a lot of powerful agents that are working against that, you know, city officials, uh, you know, lobbyists, you know, things of that nature. But it just empowered him um, to realize that he had the, the, the people behind him and he had to do the right thing with, with the position that he had. So that was just, you know, some of the, mo the moments that were just, you know, really powerful where, you walk into a, a room expecting one thing and something totally different happens. You mentioned how the younger generation is spreading this change. And I, I guess a lot of that also can be, can be tied to the, the changes that have been, um, I guess, talked about for the NFL office uh, when Mike Thomas and Marshawn Lattimore and, you know, Patrick Mahomes and those guys are on a video, uh, basically kind of demanding some, some change from the league and the league comes up and says, look, we're willing to, admit this we're willing to admit that we're willing to make another uh, financial uh, commitment how do you but when you get around to the finances how do you get the economics into tangible action well i think there's a, i think there are a lot of different um ways to go about that uh, one of the models um that that, that we're, we're suggesting is to uh, uh pick out cities and go to those cities, understand the needs in those black communities, and start there. Uh, there are a lot of different tangible ways that you can get involved in doing that and investing in the black communities for, for economic inclusion, you know, create ecosystems 
in these communities. Um, and those, those are models uh, that we've been working on, trying to create as players and, you know, and saying to the league, you know, if you want, if you, if you're serious about this action, you know, this is a way that we can, we can do it. You know, even in New Orleans, we have formed the, the social coalition team where I think we can do a lot of work uh, locally. You know, now that we have Pelicans and and, um, and you know, uh, Saints players, now you're getting a chance to match influence with affluence. And so I think there are some real working models that we can do from an economic standpoint, you know, not just the program standpoint, that we can have real economic inclusion you know, in, in, in New Orleans and doing things in the black community that kind of re revitalize it. And that's the type of approach that we need to have. So we need to have that on the league-wide level at 250 mil, you know, or more. That's a commitment at the, at the like, a national level. But we also need to have that, like, on a per-team basis, um, doing, doing, doing work on the local level. Now, we know, and we're nearing the end here, we know that you are extremely grounded. But look, man, HBO... CNN, you know, we don't want you to come back and like be, you know, I can't talk to y'all no more, but, you know, <laughs> so, you know, you know, these opportunities that are coming along, I mean, but are you, how much are you, I guess, feeling like you're really taking advantage of it and expanding on the message and really using the platform nationally? Well, my, my, my goal is just to do my part, you know, I just want to maximize the opportunities that I have to do my part, play my role as best I can. And whatever God has me do, that's what I'll do. Uh, if he has me speak, I'll speak. If he has me go, I'll go. If he has me to give, I'll give. And, and that's just how I look at it. You know, I think we all have a role to play. Um, it's, a it's a movement that don't need no leaders. It needs everybody. And that's what that's, that's how we have to go. All right, DeMario, we appreciate you greatly for your time. Um, especially, you know, because you broke off from, from, you know, something bigger, HBO, to come down to, you know, to our level. But we appreciate that. We appreciate that because you're a man. Now, truly, folks, a man of the people, not just – and I'm not just saying that. Um, this really, really uh, grounded guy who you – know, I've, ne I've never seen you say the wrong thing. Never <laughs> Isn't it so frustrating you when you meet someone like that? You're like, can you just, like, make a mistake every once in a while? Yeah, so I've never can... seen you or heard you say the wrong thing. Not that I'm looking forward to it if you ever do. <laughs> I've never seen that from you. And so, you know, it just, you know, it's just a reminder that, you know, not everybody has poise under pressure, but, you know, some people got it and some, some people got it in space. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. It's always a pleasure to be on with you guys. Demario, where can everyone find your book? Can you list off all the places that people can find your book and maybe your face mask that you've um, <clears throat> been creating as well? Yeah, they can find it on my Instagram, uh, d56davis. They can find it on uh, devoteddreamers.org under my foundation. They can find the book on Amazon. Uh, they can find they can find the mask on just typing in uh, Demario Davis, Man of God mask. Just Perfect. Google Just Google Google. <laughs> Google me, baby. Uh, well, Demario, happy birthday to your son, first of all. And uh, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you, guys. Y'all be blessed. All right. Uh, you too. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Demario for joining us on the show today. You heard him where you can find the masks, the Man of God headbands, and the Man of God masks. If you want to go purchase those, you can also purchase his books at all of the places where he mentioned. But like I said, really anywhere where you can purchase books, uh, The Unsuccessful Champion is available. 
be sure to head to neworleansaints.com or the Saints app. We have stories and videos with Saints assistant coaches available now by my lovely co-host, John DeShazer, um, with, with all the interviews going on with Saints assistant coaches, so you don't want to miss that. All right, until next week, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we hope you have a great week, everybody.